What's up, guys, and welcome to the finale of our Afghanistan series. We are so excited to have this episode ready for you guys to listen to. It's really good, and I know I said this about the last episode, but this is my favorite episode that we've recorded so far. It's amazing. Um, I was I was hooked the entire time that Steve was talking, and I know that you guys are going to be as well. So um, this episode is a little bit longer. It's on the hour side. So the feedback that we got on the last episode was that the 30-minute episodes are a little bit better. So on our next season, we're going to try and stick to that same 30-minute episode format. Um, but for this episode, we just wanted to just get the get it released and not cut it down into, into two parts or anything like that. So it is an hour, but I promise you that it is worth it. So please listen to the whole thing. Um, if you can't listen to it, make sure to just come back and finish it because it's awesome. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the finale episode, episode five. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of What I Wish I Learned in School. It's your boy, Steven Panchenko. You already know who it is. I already said hi. What's up? Um, How you doing, bud? Great. How are you? How are you feeling post-TB? I'm feeling all right. Um, So just so you guys know, um, we are a little bit late with this episode, but that is because I was in the hospital over the weekend. So that was fun. Uh, you know, just dying, couldn't breathe. So it wasn't COVID. Wasn't COVID, but uh, it was was something. So yeah, I was the greatest friend Noah ever had, and went and visited him. It was amazing. He did. He he stood by my bed all night. Yeah, just waited for me, watched yeah. me, watched me sleep. It was actually about thirty minutes before he said, "You should probably head out." Yeah, it was a, it was a little creepy how long <laughs> he was there, just like watching me. But you know, yeah, so it's creepy. all right. Anyways, we're back. All right. It's, uh, it's Wednesday when you guys are going to hear this for the first time. We are going to try to keep the episode roughly 30, 40 minutes-ish, but I have a lot of information I want to cover. Yeah. So, And this is going to be our last episode of the Afghanistan series. So it's going to be, uh, might be long, but... Yeah. I but yeah, I want to get a lot of information out here, but we'll yeah, try but to the, keep it. The condensed. feedback we got, though, was that the 30-minute episodes are uh, better. So we're going to try to keep it a little bit shorter. Um, but since this is the last episode, it might go a little bit long. So bear with us, but we're going to bring you guys the content as usual. You guys are going to love it. It's going to be a fire episode. Um, and as always, we have to say it every time. Do not forget to follow us on Spotify. Literally, like... I would say like 70, 80% of our listens are on Spotify and we're only getting, you know, a few followers uh, like a week. So please follow us on Spotify. It's super, super helpful. Um, and then those of you guys that are listening on Apple Podcast, be sure to drop a rating as well. Super helpful. Don't forget to follow Noah on Instagram. We're trying to get we him up to a million followers. Every time. We don't have to say A million followers. Time. You can do it. You can follow me if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Let's go ahead and get started. Yeah. Do you want to catch everyone else up on what we mentioned on the tail end of our last episode? Yeah. So basically, at the end of our last episode, we brought everything home with Osama bin Laden, um, basically bringing everything together to make 9-11 happen. Um, We talked about the guy, I can't remember his name, with the briefcase bomb. Oh, Masood? Yeah, Masood. We talked about our boy Masood 
who tried to warn everybody about 9-11, but then they uh, briefcase bombed him like the day before that happened. So unfortunate for him. But yep. So we tied in episode four with episode one. And so we finished off with 9-11. And yeah. so we're going to pick up right where we were there. And so the following day, right after 9-11, the U.S. gathers back together and is like, all right, what the hell happened? Who did this? What's going on? And how do we retaliate, most importantly? How do we get payback for everything that just happened today? You know, the biggest failure of intelligence in American history. And we're pissed. The strongest, most powerful nation in the world is going to change, turn its anger on, you know, whoever had done this. And we talked about it in episode one, how we declared war on terror. Meaning, we go to war with anyone who is a terrorist organization or even friendly with them. And so, that was our reasoning behind our our attacks on Kabul. So, we're going to start almost indiscriminately bombing the city of Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan. In the beginning, most of it are going to be Tomahawk missiles from um, the U.S. fleet stationed in the Persian Gulf. So, I, I, I really don't understand that. So, why exactly did they think that the correct like plan of action was just to bomb like just a random city because i mean at that point you said that the taliban was still not really known that like that much they just basically had found out about it like very recently so why did they just decide that kabul was was the place because i mean it's full of civilians right and obviously not all afghanistani people are like terrorists so why just like randomly bomb that city yeah so on our determination that, you know, allies of terrorism, we determined that the Taliban, the organization that they were, created an environment that was friendly to terrorism, right? They, they themselves were not responsible for anything, but they created a place in Afghanistan that could facilitate the creation of Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda. And in our logic, it's more about, all right, we need to topple this organization's official structure to enable Afghanistan to be almost recarved into a more, you know, ideal state where they cannot support terrorism. And our logic was, because we're more used to traditional warfare, is let's topple this government from, you know, traditional means, conventional means of bombings and leveling out their government and their conventional military power. So by leveling Kabul, we eliminate the seat of power officially through the government and for the most part, the most stable city in the country. And so we destabilize the Taliban. Therefore, destabilizing Afghanistan and opening it up into a position where they can be recreated in, in an image that we want. Right. And Which so, is what we tried to do before, but didn't really work out for right. us. Right. And so. this is going to, spoiler, end up being a 20-year endeavor where we are stuck trying to rebuild an unrebuildable nation. Right. But it's going to start with bombings. And that's going to be very expensive bombings. I showed my students like videos of Tomahawk missiles being launched from ships. It's super dramatic and cool. Um, and a single missile is millions of dollars. So this is all immediately a very expensive conflict for us. And we're going to immediately start supporting the Northern Alliance. So that guy, Masood, that we were talking about, the one who was actually the leader of Northern Alliance and the former president of Afghanistan, this was his dream, dude. Day one, he was like, I can't wait for the Americans or, or even a European nation to finally support us. And he dies just before we're able to, before he is able to see this. But we finally give them exactly what they wanted. Guns, Humvees, you know, logistics, support, intelligence. And the Northern Alliance, with the support of U.S. airstrikes and our intelligence, is almost immediately capable of taking over the Taliban. 
they they march right into Kabul, which is honestly just a pile of rubble, and they officially claim victory. The whole Afghan quote-unquote war in the beginning lasts just a couple months. The U.S. levels Kabul, the Northern Alliance gets funding, they mar- march right in, and the Taliban don't even put a resistance, they withdraw to the mountains, boom, easy. That's it. Bush goes out, goes on this giant aircraft carrier, wearing his flight suit because he's a former pilot, Bush being the president, and he puts up this banner that says, conquering Afghanistan was easy, mission accomplished. You know, we got payback for everyone who had done this to us, we're done. You know, congratulations. But not really. Because everyone's kind of like, all right, well, 9-11 wasn't orchestrated by the Taliban or Afghanistan. More of this Osama bin Laden al-Qaeda guy. So we can't leave yet. Even though mission accomplished, none of that actually happens. It was more of a feel-good measure. He will often be criticized for jumping the gun on that kind of announcement. Um, Cool snapshot is that the Northern Alliance leaders, the ones who took over from Assad, when offered to be the new government of Afghanistan, they all refuse it. The Northern Alliance is like, cool, thanks, America. We're very happy that you've helped us out and we were able to eliminate the Taliban, but we really don't have an intention of ruling this country. We're pretty much around to eliminate the Taliban and then we'll talk about some things. So all the Northern Alliance leaders say, we don't want to be president. We, want, we don't want to lead. We just want you to continue to support us financially, militarily, and we're going to go in there. We're going to just destroy the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And so that creates an even more complicated situation for the Americans. So now, all right, we've gone in, we've eliminated the government, we've gone in, we've leveled the city, taken out their military. The Northern Alliance is refusing to take up that mantle of responsibility, really, and, you know, be the country that we wanted them to be. So now we're in an even more awkward position. Are we, the American government, going to step in and you know, rule that nation for them. We can't just leave them behind. We were we just toppled everything they have. Al-Qaeda's still out there, so are we going to rely on tr- troops that we haven't trained or we can't determine their loyalty to finish the fight for us? Not really. And so that's going to lay the groundwork and the foundation for a later American invasion, troop-wise. Um, but until then, some, you know... Local leaders rise up, non-Northern Alliance, but, you know, local um, community leaders and whatnot, and they form together a, a transitional government, and in this transitional government, they create a new constitution. The constitution pretty much outlaws all the old rules of the Taliban and recreates a brand new nation-state under pretty much similar to the United States, a lower and upper house where everyone over the age of 18 can vote, especially women. That is huge. Women are not allowed to vote in this traditional, um, this traditional nation. And they would also have an election, a free and open election for anyone who desires to be president. And so there was this like fear that, okay, well, maybe the Afghanis are ready for an election, but maybe the Taliban weren't ready to give up that big step of a loss for them. You know, we can't really allow an election to happen in a country we just ruled. So there everyone's worried about this upcoming election safety-wise. The Taliban are probably going to react, and they're probably going to cause some kind of disturbance. And yet, after so like they think that the Taliban are like playing the long game, basically. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and what we've learned is the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are nothing but patient. They're able to take a step back 
and literally watch from the shadows for 20 years while we F up the country and they just wait for their opportunity. And they're going to stick it to us every opportunity they have. And this election, everyone thought would be the first major way that they would do it. The election rolls around and it's a major success. Huge turnout. Nearly every adult in the country votes, including the women. Ironically, a lot of them can't even read. And so when asked a lot of these people, like, why are you voting? Um, you, you don't even know who you're voting for. And they would often just reply with the same comment, like, because I'm allowed to. For the first time in my life, I have an opportunity to say what I want to do in my life. And so they actually developed this interesting method of voting and uh, campaigning that if someone wanted to run for president, they were able to just associate their name and their party with a symbol. So, like, if you want to vote for Noah Sonnenberg, vote for the, the red triangle. You want to vote for Stephen Penchenko, vote for the blue circle. And so I, would, I would be a green triangle, actually. So, Damn, that's probably why you would never be president. <laughs> red triangle yeah. gang, dude. <laughs> Superior. <laughs> so, they're able to hold the election, and it goes well. Not a single attack happens. And yet, I believe it was the most secure election to date. I don't mean by, like, voter fraud or whatnot. I mean, like, legit military security. They would have helicopters above every single voting polling station, tanks, Humvees, guarded up the wazoo, basically. It was secure. Nobody was going to try to mess with that election process. Honestly, that's good. Like, welcome to democracy, Afghanistan. Yeah. So, quick question. Um, this is a little bit off topic, but yeah. while the Taliban were like in in hiding or or like in waiting or whatever, did they have like their own like geographical area of Afghanistan where they all just kind of hang out? Uh, yeah, there was regions that were known to be more like Taliban heavy, I guess you can say, or areas where they had a lot more influence. And we'll learn to, honestly today towards the end of the unit is that they even formed a shadow government. So, like, if you, a citizen, were disenfranchised and not happy with the way that the traditional government was running something specifically, the justice system, you were able to, you know, approach a Taliban person who you likely knew was a Taliban and you weren't going to surrender them over and have them resolve an issue for you. So, they even had, like, this backup government if you weren't a fan of, um, you know, the traditional government. And that was legal? Nope. But they did it anyways. Yeah, nothing of what the Taliban was about to do was legal. And, I mean, screw them, but either way, uh, after the election, there's a huge rise in feminism in Afghanistan. Women, obviously, like back in the day when we talked about the Velvet Revolution, disregard their head coverings, they're allowed to vote, and they're even serving in their government. And members in the government are often, uh, what are they called? Conspirator, conspirators? conspirators conspirators <laughs> there we go we got there we made yeah. it when you ramble a lot you kind of lose but either way they're conspi- dude <laughs> conspirators leave this party <laughs> whatever conspirators conspirators these conspirators would often try to reform legislation in you know behaviors that would benefit the taliban and the women specifically were super against that. And so there would often be a battle in the Senate and the upper house between this new uh, organized women or- like group and the conspirators <laughs> of the go. Taliban. <laughs> and so the, the Afghan situation is a, a fight on the ground, on the like boots on the ground, but it's also a fight of words in the Senate. You know, people battling out their words. 
And so that was interesting. So the resistance is growing despite the American support. So the United States is thinking, okay, we can't leave and we can't really rely on the, on the Northern Alliance to really crush the Taliban for us. So we're going to need to do something in a way to pay up, you know, pay back for what we've done, you know. And so we come up with a Marshall Plan 2.0. If you know anything about the Marshall Plan, it was a massive U.S. spending bill to rebuild Europe after World War II. And it was basically free money to rebuild industry. It was basically a big plan to rebuild industry in Europe. And so it, it was free money. Just get roads, get factories, get people jobs, mostly get people food. The goal is to create a nation and nations that are self-sustaining and very friendly to the United States, that therefore guaranteeing us a future trade partner. You know, as big as as big and bad as we think we are, we can't really survive in the world on our own. And so we needed to build up our allies, and so we gave them a Marshall Plan. The same logic applies to the Marshall Plan 2.0 in Afghanistan. And legislators outline that they only really need $25 billion to rebuild the nation of Afghanistan into a properly functioning, you know, good, decent nation, right? $25 billion. I think... Elon Musk in the last like 13 days added more to his personal wealth. 25 billion is a lot, but on the scale that we're talking really isn't. And the plan would rebuild their airport, rebuild roads. It would build a massive highway between Kandahar and Kabul and really rebuild infrastructure, critically speaking, like electricity, water. And the plan is uh, put on hold for a little while. Lucky for Afghanistan, they also experience a reverse brain drain. Anytime a nation enters a, a period of instability, the first thing that happens is everyone who is educated and anyone who is worth anything is going to leave the nation. We call that a brain drain. So if there's a revolt or revolution or you know economic instability, anyone who can will leave. And so that's all the talent leaving a nation. In the U.S., we're blessed with the fact that a lot of the talent that leaves other nations comes here. So we're always, we have the best and the brightest oftentimes. And in Afghanistan, they get the opposite. Now that the nation has been stabilized and the Taliban has been removed from power, a lot of, you know, classic or traditional Afghani people that left the nation when um, they took over back in the 90s, they come back. We're talking economists, doctors, billionaires, city planners, even the entire university staff returns together on the same flight. Uh, even pop stars return and music is now obviously allowed and fun fact because we know we like these um, Titanic was the most popular movie in Afghanistan six years running wow yeah they, they just, just kept they just love Leonardo DiCaprio they just kept there, showing huh? it back to back to back <laughs> I was reading and it was literally every movie theater for six years that was their number one showing wow I can't explain that one even in the slightest there's no logic there for me <laughs> But the Titanic, obviously, is the gold of the, you know, the crown of the whole reverse brain drain. Mm -hmm. The fact that everyone comes home. And part of that university staff, one of them was the head of the Afghan National Museum. And it turns out that right before the Taliban took over in the 90s, he had his entire staff go to the museum and hide every single piece of artifact that they had in the museum. And they dug an underground vault 25 miles away from Kabul that the Taliban was never able to find. 
And when they return, he's able to go to that vault. He didn't even know the fate of it. He thought, you know, maybe they found it, destroyed it, sold it, whatever. He comes back and turns out the entire thing is completely intact. Let's go. Yeah, 10,000 items wow. fully intact. Taliban never discovered it. Weirdly, when the Taliban controlled their nation, um, they destroyed a lot of historical facts or um, historical landmarks. Like or, artifacts. Yeah, artifacts. Yeah. That's why I said facts. But yeah, they destroyed a ton of artifacts for no reason. Yeah, really. I, was, I was reading about that, actually. Some of the um, articles and stuff that I've been reading outside of, you know, just doing the podcast... Um, that I was wondering about that. Like, I mean, the Taliban are still from like Afghan, like they're still Afghanistan natives. So, like, why would they want to destroy their own culture, despite the fact that I mean, yeah, obviously they're you know they want to have their own regime and everything, but like you'd think that the historic landmarks and everything would still tie into their religion and into their culture, right? And I honestly, I don't fully know the answer to it, but my guess would be to the point of like where an individual really wants to hype up themselves more than they're really worth. And so anything that exists contrary to their self-image needs to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so that'd be my guess. The Taliban acting as an individual is like, well, we should be the sole history of Afghanistan. So screw everything else that happened before us. That'd be my guess, honestly. Mm -hmm. But all right, let's talk about U.S. goals in Afghanistan. Because we got involved in a war where we didn't really have clear goals. Honestly, it was a fit of rage. We got pissed and we we lashed out. We got payback, but we now need to grow up, sit down, and think about what our goals are. We want to two things that President Bush and the, and his cabinet lay out two specific goals for Afghanistan. Number one, we want to symbolically save Afghan women. We want to provide a life for the women living in Afghanistan to have you know, of real life with freedoms. That's the feel-good goal. Number two is to punish terrorists or terrorism in general. Decent goals. Very vague. How do you symbolically save women and how long does that last? And how do you punish terrorists? Do you send them to Guantanamo Bay and torture them for 40 years or do you kill them or what do you do? And so, it's nice for him, for Bush, to lay out vague goals because then when he fails or somebody fails, you can't really say, well, you messed up because he can just say, no, we did it. But it's also bad because he can never clearly lay out his real, you know, that we win kind of thing. So classic politician, really. Um, fun fact, of the war, this is, um, I actually made my students run a, an entire unit on this for an in-class activity where the Afghan war would end up costing 2.313 trillion dollars. An obscene amount of money. Like, just ridiculous. It's enough money to go to the moon and back if you if you laid it out in hundreds. And that's, it took like, a Like hundred dollar bills? Yes. Yeah. What? In stacks, not long ways, stacks. What? Yeah. 2.3 trillion dollars. If you were to rebuild the entire U.S. infrastructure like with high speed rail and and like nice roads it'd be half of that oh my god if we did universal health care at the most extreme level it would cost 800 billion <laughs> it's it's ridiculous amount of money uh, but of that 2.3 trillion dollars oh yeah i was gonna mention that my students actually got to play an activity where they got 2.3 trillion and spend it on whatever they want in the u.s not for fun for themselves but if they were the president and you'd be surprised at crazy amounts of things that people can actually achieve in $2.3 trillion. 
mini rant. So how does the U.S. have $28 trillion in debt? Where the hell did it go? <laughs> yeah, that's stupid. If I had $2.3 billion or trillion, dollars, I would put Disney World in every state. Every state would have its own Disney World. Dang. Why not uh, Universal Studios? Because Disney's better. I don't like the business practices of Disney. <laughs> well, I don't care. This is my fantasy. It's my $2.3 trillion. <laughs> yeah, that's a fat F. Either way, <laughs> 77% of the money that we spend in Afghanistan never makes it to the nation. So 77% of $2.3 trillion stays within the United States border. That's ridiculous. That means that most of that money was coming to contractors. I, the U.S. government, decide I want to build a highway in Afghanistan. And to keep my voters happy in America, I'm not going to hire Afghan companies to build that road for me. I'm going to hire you, Noah, who, who are a, you know, a major asphalt manufacturing company in America. And you are going to up your, up your price. So traditionally, you charge a million dollars a mile in America. Suddenly, hmm. Is that true? Yes. Million dollars a mile? Yeah, for a single lane road. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so you are going to think, mm, well, now the government's giving me a contract and a nice fat one. It's going to be $60 million a mile, America. And guess what we're going to say? Cool. Do whatever. Spend that money. So a lot of that money is spent on contractors that are building up infrastructure. But more importantly, we are going to spend what is it, 60% of it, if you include the State Department OCO, on defense contractors within the nation. So we don't want to officially report, you know, American casualties on our service branches. So we're going to very much so hire two big defense contractors to do a lot of the heavy lifting in Afghanistan for us. An organization called Blackwater and a second one called Global Security. These are former military troops that are working for a private military contracting group. And for a while, they're going to pick up a lot of the, the heavy lifting for America. So we can say, you know, if 10 of these Blackwater soldiers die, no American soldiers died this week. Americans died, soldiers died, but not really American, you know, service members. So it's a really cheeky way to get around these kinds of things. And they're also paid a lot. These organizations are full of tens of thousands of people, and each one is paid $250,000 a year on average. That's not even including the top earners. And Blackwater and Global Security, they're not just boots on the ground. They have logistics. They have intelligence. They have even people that work in their barracks. And so we're creating... Barracks. <laughs> what is it? Barracks I? I don't know. <laughs> um, we're going to have these big companies pretty much build their bases within Kabul and Afghanistan. And they're going to absolutely destroy Kabul's property values. Because if you have tens of thousands of new people moving into your country who are worth millions of dollars, guess what they're going to want to do? Spend that money. And so Kabul property values mega inflate. It gets to the point where Kabul's rent is more expensive than San Francisco. What? Yeah. Your average employee in Kabul, which is full of American patriots, are $200,000. That's that's excluding Blackwater and global security. Just everybody involved in the city. Your average Afghan salary at this point in Kabul, 2.2,000. 2, 
we're talking about 100% more money from the Americans. And so you're an Afghan citizen, Noah. You're living in Kabul. You make 2.3,000 a year and your rent is $2,700 a month. You're not going to be happy with the people in your country. Yeah. Despite their motivations for being wherever they are. And so <laughs> we're starting to lay this, the foundation of a nation that's going to hate us. Yeah. Talk about gentrification. Yeah. To, to a mega extent. <laughs> and it only gets worse because when people in Kabul realize, okay, maybe it's safe enough to go back to the countryside and they go back to their farms and their, and their areas that they used to be in, they discover that, wait, nobody actually removed the Soviet landmines from the phase. If you remember back to episode, what, two or three? So there's just a bunch of landmines sitting around that they just forgot about? Well, who was going to get rid of them? Nobody's been back since the Soviets. They just asked the Soviets to come back and take them. Yeah, no, I don't know about that one. (laughs) Uh, So there's all these landmines, and so they're like, well, damn, we can't go back to the farms. So all those people end up coming back. Fun fact, it cost the Soviets $3 to lay a mine. And it costs the Rush or the Americans one thousand dollars per landmine to remove. So we think about it. We're like, we're not removing them. There's millions of mines. F that. We're not going to get involved. So the Afghan farmers are on their own. You'll just be walking, sowing your field, living your best life, watching the sunrise, and boom, your leg is gone. <laughs> and and so, that's that's like a common occurrence. Yeah, it's so bad that Kabul's population stays inflated to a point where it's not natural to keep that many people in one area. Wow. And it's worse because all the decent areas are housed by Americans because they can afford it. And Kabul landowners are like, hell yeah, of course I'm going to give rent to the guy who can pay me quadruple my weekly salary than, you know, my local farmer. So did, resentment starts I mean, to did build. Did the Soviets know what they were, like, did they know that they were going to make, like, that whole area just uninhabitable for the foreseeable future? Because, like, they, they had to have foreseen that not all of the mines would have exploded right away like as soon as they planted them so were they just expecting that whole area to just just be uninhabitable literally well what was their intention they wanted to depopulate the whole area so in a way their goal was achieved right they depopulated it either by killings or fear so yeah they definitely intended for that yeah they didn't care though uh the farmers that do remain start to turn to a more lucrative business Uh, rather than growing food which is honestly inflated on the world market specifically thanks to america we really flood the the world market with food they decide to start growing something that will make them a lot more money opium what is opium used for noah hmm i don't know i want to say heroin yeah yep good word (laughs) what can i say i know a thing or two about drugs Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, 90% of the world's opium is now grown in Afghanistan the second the U.S. takes over. It is very cheap to grow, very easy to grow, takes very little water, it makes you a crap ton of money, and it is easy, easy money. Your Afghan citizen who's making 2.2 thousand a year is quickly becoming as valuable as Americans who are living in Kabul, make selling drugs. And most of that is smuggled through the um, Pakistan border. Hopefully when we get to the drug trade, we can even throw back a, a call out to this episode and be like, hey, remember we talked about it? So it'll be cool. 
So opium is huge. And the number one profiter of this is going to be the Taliban. Of course. Yeah, because they're the ones ruling the countrysides at this point, and they're going to harass the farmers to give them a percentage of all of it. In fact, they're even going to offer a deal to the farmers. Hey, if you'd like, we are going to, you know, we'll sell the opium for you, and don't worry about anything else. Just grow it, and we'll give you a cut of the deal. The Taliban today in 2021 are still the largest producer of heroin. So if you do heroin, listeners, you're supporting the Taliban, so double... Double negative for you. <laughs> Double whammy. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do heroin. All right. Remember that whole Marshall Plan I was talking about? That $25 billion plan? Well, Congress denies it. We don't want to spend that money. But we end up spending $2.3 So talk about military-industrial complex. Um, but we decide to go against it. And failures of reconstruction begin immediately. The Taliban have been waiting for their move, and it's now. They've been waiting for the Americans to decide, okay, are they going to get invested? Are they going to, what are they going to do? And we decide not to do the slower, more effective way of rebuilding their country. And in fact, we start to step up our military presence in the nation rather than, you know, economic rebuilding. And so we no longer outsource as much of our uh, fighting to Blackwater and global security. And we start sending in more and more Americans. And by 2002, 5,000 troops are deployed in Afghanistan. A, a modest number. A lot of them pilots, and a lot of them defending the airports. Well, two of these pilots that are flying over an area that is controlled by the Taliban, they see a very large formation gathering below them. Their, their intelligence report says this area is populated mostly by the Taliban, and that any groups gathering are to be assumed to be a threat. They drop their bombs, level the whole area, kill most of the people, go home and celebrate. Congratulations, good day work, you killed an entire band of Taliban. Turns out later that that entire group at that gathering was not in fact the Taliban, but instead a wedding. And so the United States accidentally destroys an entire wedding. Just a random wedding? Yep. Yikes. The bride and the groom die including most of the attendants. I guess you could say the U.S. objected <laughs> to, the, to the marriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we definitely did, and we killed them. But that's the moment the Taliban have been waiting for. Now we can finally, we are popular enough amongst the people who are upset that the Americans are destroying our economy, and we are now able to use a single moment of failure on the U.S. and and start building up propaganda. And so we're going to uh, use this opportunity that the Americans killed a wedding and a bunch of people in it and spread that information around the Americans are dangerous, join the Taliban, you know, rebuild our good old nation kind of thing. And America's like, all right, our response to it is to build, all right, we need our boots on the ground, the, the Northern Alliance is not controllable by the americans and we need an organization we can control and our american troops clearly can cause more damage and they can cause good so we form an ana the afghan national army and this is the biggest joke in the for so very long because these guys are given top of the line american equipment armor helmets and everything except for training we are told here is a gun here is a helmet go find terrorists Good luck. So it's like <clears throat> it's like giving a chimpanzee a MacBook, <laughs> and, and you know, make a playlist. Yeah, <laughs> make this iMovie. Design for me. a website. 
Yeah. So we make the ANA with the intent of being the bridge between America and Afghanistan. Uh, you know, a real army, but without the real army part. Eventually, we're going to translate our objectives towards making the ANA the real army. But, but honestly, such a pathetic joke of an army in the beginning. We'll, we'll build them into something later, but man, they suck. Um, the Taliban start harassing American diplomats, Afghan politicians, community leaders, and especially the ANA. They really like to mess with those guys. In fact, a lot of Taliban soldiers would join the ANA because there was no background check, take the guns and just walk home. And hey, guess what? I got us new guns, guys. And go back the next day to a different branch and get more guns and come back. They were just robbing us blind in that way. Man, I just don't get their logic. The American logic is bad. The Taliban are harassing us. They're blowing up roads. They're blowing up government buildings. And they're blowing up air bases. After we realize that there are, you know, constant harassments, the Taliban learn you know, that that's not as as effective as it can be. And so they're going to try a more radical approach. And they're going to specifically hire young, unambitious, or even foolish kids who are very, very radicalized in, you know, in the Taliban mindset. And they're going to start suicide bombing. And the Taliban is going to bomb a lot of checkpoints where Americans are, they're going to bomb a lot of ANA facilities and government buildings. So their harassment immediately upscales into suicide bombings. The thing about suicide bombings is that, yeah, they're effective, but boy, are they as effective as turning people against you as they are for you. Because you're going to look desperate and you're going to lose support. When Pablo Escobar starts doing suicide bombings near the presidential palace in Colombia, is the same week that he will lose popularity amongst his people who saw him literally as a god. And so the Taliban, they almost share that same fate. That once they start suicide bombings, it lasts very briefly because their popularity shrinks to almost nothing. But it happens, and it's worthy of mentioning it because a lot of people were forced into believing that what they were doing was the right thing. Same logic applies to you know, 9-11. And so, a very unfortunate reality of, of Afghanistan and the war against the Taliban were children who were strapped full of bombs and told to walk over to Americans and blow themselves up. So, it's pretty heavy. Good news on our end is that, you remember the man named Omar, Muhammad Omar? Yeah. Yeah, the, the origin of the Taliban, mm -hmm. the very leader of it. Well, have you noticed I haven't talked about him very much? Yeah, ever since you talked about him with, with like the cloak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He honestly disappears, and he becomes a legend and a myth amongst the Taliban. You know, that man who created our organization. Turns out that the second the Americans invaded, the dude had a full-on mental breakdown, stayed in his room, and completely lost his marbles. And the leaders of the Taliban never wanted that information to get out. But he completely lost his mind. And we actually don't even know exactly what ends up happening to him. But all we know is that he lost his mind. The Taliban tried to cover it up and he will no longer ever be in the picture. And today the Taliban is not ruled by him. Do they even like acknowledge him anymore? No, no. So most, like most people in the Taliban, they, they, they thought he was still ruling the, the whole organization. Oh, just like behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. He became a myth, a legend. Like, holy crap, this guy, he's, oh. he's, he's so busy. He doesn't have time. So then how did we find out about it? Um, the book I read, the guy did, um, interviews with like top level 
Afghanistan or Taliban leaders. So, wow. so the information's out there, but it's just about accessing it. And I'm not, I'm sure that the, the Taliban is not sitting down and reading a nice novel about, you know, Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they probably, yeah, they probably see that as propaganda, but the dude's all the way out of the, out of the picture. It's crazy. But by 2006, so jumping a couple years here, the United States enters a tipping point. A situation where are we going to tip to be involved more in the war or are we going to tip and dip out? So we're, we're teetering on the edge of, okay, what are we doing here? There's this weird dual society living in Afghanistan. One is chaos and disorder of, of suicide bombings, the disorder, disorder and disorganization of you know, the Taliban and mafias and opium. But there's also the fact that life has, for the most part, with the exception of these bombings, gone back to normal in Afghanistan. Women enjoy new freedoms, democracy is a thing, and the economy is flourishing. So we're deciding, are we going to stay involved, double down, and try to remove the Taliban as a threat and completely remove this like chaos out of the country? Or do we call this success? Bush, had, he had penalized the terrorists, and he had saved the Afghan women. So what are we going to do? Well, Bush never makes to make never gets to make the final call. He is going to get um, he's going to run out his term. By 2008, there's new leader, there's a new leader in the office. A man who is very open about his distaste for the Afghan war and and the war on terror. A man by the name of Barack Obama. Yes, sir. <laughs> We love our boy Barack. Barack. <laughs> hey, what's Obama's last name? I don't know, dude. I really don't know. <laughs> um, I don't think he has one. <laughs> Obama campaigned on the fact that Iraq was the biggest mistake in history, the invasion of that, and that the war in Afghanistan is just a failure. And he's like, when I get in office, I'm going to change everything. Unfortunately for him, the year he takes office is what we call the year of school burnings. So in Afghanistan, the Taliban learn, hmm, what is a political institution in the country that is vulnerable and that would send a big message? Sure, we can't do terror, you know, suicide bombings anymore, but we need to get our point across. And they realize that schools, which are opening all across the country and allowing men and women to go to school, mostly the women part, are easy targets. And so... They're going to just walk into these places, which we all, in pretty much in the whole world, not even just Americans, we assume that schools are an institution that are beloved by everyone. Honestly, an area that no one will disagree with that people should be educated. We may disagree on how and what they should be taught, but it's more about the fact that we all agree that they should be taught. The Taliban were worried about crossing the line here. But they make the choice anyway, and they start burning down schools. There's this amazing novel called um, I Am Malala. Have you ever read it? I haven't read it, but I've heard it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's about this girl on the Afghan-Pakistan border whose father, her father is a a principal at a school. And in her book, it talks about how her dad really struggled with building his school, convincing people to come in there. And how she is, you know, as a woman in Pakistan in this area, which is still very heavily influenced by uh, the Taliban, has to deal with going to school. And, uh, you know, tune out right now, skip 15 seconds ahead if you want to read the book and you want to want to know what happens. Um, but in the in the novel, eventually her her father's school is burned down 
and she is targeted as, you know, someone that shouldn't have been in school and is shot in the head and several times in the body. Luckily for her, she survives. Like, imagine getting shot in the she head. She survives getting shot in the head? Yeah. Uh, she, wait, I get my one bad word. She's super badass. Uh, it's always the same bad word every time, too. <laughs> you know, it's the, the least of the bad ones. Um, but she ends up, she today is still alive, just finished her doctorate from Harvard, and is a UN ambassador for peace and education. So, you know, everyone who has a need for a good book to read, I am Malala. It's amazing. But girls like her, everywhere around Afghanistan and Pakistan, are dealing with the same reality of the Taliban coming in and, and uprooting their entire lives of this year of school burnings. And we already talked about that shadow government thing, right? Where I mentioned that the Taliban were building up this fact. But more about that is that the Taliban, by 2008, realize it's not if they are going to defeat the Americans in, in the war in Afghanistan, but when. And so they start forming even mirrored roles of everyone in the government today. So the Taliban start to match, you know, person for person, you know, a, a chief justice, a, a president, a military leader, all in preparation for um, when, when the day they take over. But we're not ready for that yet because o Obama pulls every soldier out of uh, Iraq and puts, you know, far more troops into Afghanistan. Under Bush, when he was leaving office, he had 30,000 troops. Under Obama, that number is uh, ballooned up to 400,000. Nearly half, American, half a million Americans are deployed into Afghanistan. And that's because he makes a proclamation that America is losing the war, and unless we step up our game, everything we have done in the last seven years is going to be for a waste. And so he says, we need to put out this fire in the nation of Afghanistan Otherwise, it's going to spread to the whole street, referencing the whole street of, uh, of Central Asia. So uh, unless we put out the fire that we started in this nation, we are going to burn down the Middle East and the Central Asian region. And so, fun fact, that's more soldiers than the Soviets ever deployed. Obama also changes his tactic in Afghanistan. Under Bush, it was mostly search and destroy operations and targeting Taliban leadership. And under Obama, it switches to counterinsurgency. The ANA is almost seamlessly, you know, blended with American operations, meaning most units are given an Afghan translator, and ANA soldiers are gone on deployments and patrols with Americans to learn our style of counterinsurgency, with the final objective being, let's eventually, you know, get our troops out of here and have the ANA fully capable of doing this whole battle operation themselves. So Obama walks into you know, Afghanistan with a real plan. None of this vague save women and punish terrorists. It was create counterinsurgency, build up the ANA, and get the hell out. But until then, we have to not even double down, like triple down, and you know, achieve our goal. He actually goes against the advice of his vice president, Biden, who, fun fact, your current president. I don't know if you know that because you never see anything in the news. <laughs> Such a boring guy. Um, but his vice president, Biden, is super against it. He tells Obama, dude, putting that many soldiers at risk in Afghanistan is asking for trouble. We should instead have a more surgical approach. He's like, you're trying to hunt down a fly using a rocket launcher. You know, use a, you know, use a scalpel here. Whatever. But it works, though. <laughs> yeah, it works. But you're going to tear down the wall while you're at it. 
And so he's like, we should withdraw traditional soldiers and only have special forces there. We should have way more drones and target known terrorists all the time, like systematic annihilation rather than an occupation. Ironically, when Biden takes over, that's not his approach. Three years into Obama's term, big news for him, SEAL Team 6 lands in a compound in Pakistan, and they figure out that that compound belongs to a man by the name of Osama bin Laden, and they're able to execute him, drop his body in the ocean, and call it good. You know that whole, ladies and gentlemen, we got him? We got him. <laughs> yeah. So did they did they specifically plan to find Osama there, or did yes. they just kind of happen upon it? And it was actually a huge issue because Pakistan being technically our ally, they withheld that information from us. They straight up knew Osama bin Laden was in their territory, and they didn't say a word. We figured it out. Wow. Yeah. Do you think we would have gotten him a lot earlier if we had known that? Yeah, absolutely. You know what's weird about the whole Osama bin Laden thing? Is that the entire team that executed him um, later would die in a single helicopter accident together. What? Weird, right? That's so crazy. Yeah, who knows? A little, a little suspicious. Also, the SEAL teams are supposed to be flying on one helicopter together. They should have been flying on two separate ones in case such a thing happens. And it turns out that that one day that they all were together, they did. Conspiracies. But Bin Laden's dead, and now we're really asking, should we pull out? Are we done with Afghanistan? We got the guy. Like, we got him. So what's left? Well, Obama says the ANA, they're not quite ready. He needs a couple more years with them. And by 2014, you know, quote, you know, good on Obama for doing this, but he actually admits that he was mistaken with doubling down in Afghanistan. Despite his troops being able to kill Osama bin Laden, he admits that he was wrong in his approach in doubling down. And a quote from him in 2014. Operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and the war on terrorism have reduced the pace of military transformation and have revealed our lack of preparation for defensive and stability operations. And here's the most important part. This administration has overextended our military. He admits, we spent too much. I overdid it. This is a mistake. I'm sorry. And so, you know, I got the guy, but at what cost? I can actually tell you the cost, $2.313 trillion. And so Obama, all credit to him, you know, admits it. And before he has time to reveal a, a legit exit strategy, you know what happens in 2016. There was a big election. I think you were allowed to vote that one. Oh, yeah. Your boy. Yeah, just, a, you know, a slight little election. Yeah, yeah. Your boy, uh, Donnie J, gets elected. The election of Donald Trump changes, honestly, the face of, the, of all politics in the world, including his strategy with dealing with Afghanistan. Speaking of which, that is what, one, two, this is our third president now involved in the war, stretching a lot of generations. Um, by the end of the war, people that were old enough to join the army in 2001 and fight the Taliban, by the end of the war, their kids are able to grow up and join the army and fight the same war. That's how long this stupid war lasts. But Trump goes in and he's like, heck no, we're not ready. We are going to increase the war effort. 
we are not ready to go, and we're not going to leave until I say we are confident in leaving this nation in a better state than we found it in. Man, that was a really good Trump impression. I'm not even going to try. I, I considered <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, here's some. Here's a weird fact. Uh, when our troops made it to Afghanistan, we allowed opium exports of Afghanistan to increase. So either America was really bad at stopping flowers from growing or we got a cut of the deal. So here's another weird conspiracy for you. But under Trump, the first target they do, he's like, we're going to target all opium labs of the Taliban. We're going to wipe them out. And so Trump also gets the Taliban to the table by targeting so many of their labs and hitting their home with finance that by 2019, the Taliban, who have grown exponentially in power and influence across the nation, um, who are viable enough to you know, cause a threat to their new government, they opt to have peace with the United States. And so by 2019, Secretary Pompeo flies to Kabul Trump's Secretary of State, Pompeo, flies to Kabul, and they agree to have a peace deal with the Taliban. And so the deal is that the Americans would withdraw all troops, and the Taliban and the new and the government that the Americans had formed in, the, in Afghanistan would create like a dual system government, kind of like the Taliban and the Northern Alliance government being political parties. And that they would split the nation amongst party and each one would have to, you know, get a traditional democratic vote. And so, but to do that, we would also have to leave. And we get the, the, the context of uh, the Taliban would not allow Al-Qaeda to return. Even though Osama bin Laden's dead, Al-Qaeda is still a threat. And so the deal is signed. And about 90 minutes after the deal is signed, as American troops are kind of breathing in a fresh breath of air, we finished it, you know, the war's over. 90 minutes later, there's 15 simultaneous attacks across 15 American bases in, in Afghanistan. So they really, <laughs> they really told us. And so, but September 29th, a year later, on 2020, the Americans are like, all right, you suck, but we really want to get out. And so we're going to sign the exact same deal again. But they remove the, the piece where they have to split the country by political parties and the Taliban would be allowed to have sole control of the country. So they really got a better deal out of it. And, and Trump's like, you know what? Screw it. We're done. We're going to pull out. On September 29th, the deal is signed. And just three days before the plan goes into effect, Biden becomes president. So under Trump... It wasn't as much of a narrative change except for initially in the beginning, they're going to bomb the crap out of the Taliban to try to get him to the negotiating table, and it works. And now that Biden's in charge, he has about three days to um, make a decision. Is he going to uh, honor Trump's agreement? Is he going to go his own route? What is he going to do? Also, Biden's a bit busy uh, you know, with a lot of other things day one. But here's a big one. He really needs to decide what to do with Afghanistan. And he agrees to the point without adding a single piece of extra information to Trump's agreement with the Taliban. And the agreement is by September 11th, 2021, that all American troops would withdraw. And that deal was signed on September 29th, 2020. So that gives them a, almost a full year to leave. 
And that kind of brings us to where we were as a current event just, you know, two months ago. You know, facing very little resistance, Taliban fighters were able to overrun the capital of Kabul and were, they were able to take over the presidential palace hours after President Ghani leaves the country. The Taliban leaders say they will hold their official talks as the new Islamic government of Afghanistan and they are rapidly, they were rapidly advancing into the nation, consuming the entire nation capturing almost every single nation or local government capital within 11 days. So the second that 2021 rolls around the end of summer, um, as the Americans are almost fully withdrawn, the Taliban launch one of the most uh, aggressive offensives in history. They out, nearly out of the shadows do they show up. It, it, we couldn't even anticipate where all these people were coming from. And they capture everything. The ANA, the Afghan National Army dissolves. The president completely unable to to do anything to stop this attack. The Taliban and without even the, the government without the support of the Americans just completely falls over. And what honestly an embarrassment that is. Twenty years, four presidents, two point three trillion dollars just to be left in a position where we were worse off than where we started. After 11 days. Yeah, 11 days. Are you kidding me? We're talking 55,000 you know, people dead, like American service people. Un- unspeakable amounts of citizens killed of Afghanistan. And the amount of people that are injured and are you know, paralyzed or missing a limb from landmines or, or bombs or on, so much, right? And we achieve nothing. The Afghan government dissolves and the last American plane leaves Kabul and to this day, twenty twenty one, what's today November 9th, we we still have people left behind. It was the most disastrous withdrawal in history. The airport, I'm sure when you were watching the news back in, in September, by the way, we leave in September tenth, one day before the agreement, but the the withdrawal from the airport is such a joke. We were so panicky as if we didn't know this is the exact day it was coming. And so you can't blame but, anyone. But I mean, we knew the exact day was coming and so did the Taliban. Right. So they had to have been like expecting this, you know? Yeah. But so we all should have been expecting it. Yeah. And you can't really blame Bush. You can't blame Obama. You can't blame Trump or Biden. You know, the the fact lies on the fact that America has created such a a system where, you know, defense contractors can really dictate public policy and allow us to get involved in situations where we have no business in being in and causing so much harm, human life, honestly, and, and the amount of money spending, it, it's ridiculous. And so Afghanistan, and to wrap up our whole unit, you know, spanning the Cold War and seeing the world develop from the eyes of the Afghanis can really show you just how sad these world these claim these powers that claim to be the world powers you know the united states and russia and just how absolutely childish they act towards territories that they quote can claim just because they have the ability to be in another place and control it by means of force doesn't mean they have the right to do it and nor does it even show us that they have any semblance of reason or logic when they do it and so so basically this whole entire thing over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years has just been the United States and Russia and the Soviet Union just basically playing chess 
over Afghanistan. And at the end of the day, the only loser is the Afghanistani people. Absolutely. And I would even take it a step further and say everyone's a loser here. Everyone but the, the certain individuals who profited from it, right? You and I lose out on the fact that our nation is $2.3 trillion out, that we could have had a better road system. We could have had a better healthcare system. You know, the fact that you were just sick a couple of days ago, you know, we could have had a whole better system for that. The fact that our roads are so terribly designed and, and human life, right? Just a disaster. Well, on that note, that uh, that concludes our, our season on Afghanistan. Um, this episode ended up being a lot longer than we expected, so we may cut it down into two episodes. Um, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out in post. Don't worry about it, Steve. <laughs> um, yeah, so again, thank you guys so much for those of you who have stuck with us since episode one and are here with us today on episode five. We appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we will resume our regularly scheduled uh, next season, which I believe will be on the drug trade, if I'm not mistaken. You might be. I don't know. Okay, we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Anyways, we'll be back with another season in a couple weeks. Um, in the meantime, we will still have some filler episodes for you guys. We're going to figure Don't call them filler. Out. They're great. Okay, well, they're going to be good These episodes. These are <clears throat> what I wish I learned specials. Special editions. Uh, in between um, this this season and our next season while we while we get prepared. But we will have some content for you guys over the next couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for that. Um, and I think that's it. You want to take us out, Steve? Yeah. And I hope, guys, after five, maybe six episodes, depending on how it breaks it down, I hope going into it that you now know far more about Afghanistan than you started our episodes. And I, I give you this personal guarantee that you now finishing out this podcast know more about afghanistan's history than our generals knew going into the war in 2001 and so take pride in that it's powerful all right well thank you guys so much and we will see you again next week